Hi everybody. Uh, my name is Carl Hennigan. Uh, I know some people and I know some of you are on the diagnostic course and some of you have just walked in off the street. Is that correct? Yeah. Are you in the right place then? <laughs> yeah. Alright. Um, I've been doing diagnostic work for about 20 years ago and uh, I put this title out and then you sent it out on the Twitter sphere and somebody last week went, oh, why do we need to talk about diagnostic reasoning? We sorted all that out in the 90s, didn't we? And I, at that point, I thought, oh my gosh, that's really interesting. Somebody believes that most of diagnostic reasoning is sorted in the NHS. I very rarely meet somebody in clinical practice who understands what the hell they're doing. All right? And I'm going to explain to you why. All right? I've got loads of examples, but I'm only going to give you a few. Um, I was in New York uh, when I got an invite to an overdiagnosis conference. And they said, we want you to do the keynote speech in Barcelona. Oh, that's really neat. And I often thought when you were in New York, you know, these signposts were caution. It was something to do with the traffic. But actually, what it was really to do was, is this van, I think, where you can have a CT scan on the side of the road. And if you go in New York, you can have the road to early detection, and you can pay on the side of the road and get a CT scan. What a good idea. Scan your brain for free or for a few hundred dollars tomorrow. And on the way home, I started to realise all this stuff is emerging everywhere. You get these adverts all the time. £120, you can have a genetic test. In fact, only a few weeks ago, he said the NHS is going to do genetic tests for everybody and you're going to pay us. Fantastic. And then when I got home, I started to realise... Oh, I'm at the right age, so there are some people in the room who are a bit older than me. And the young people, this doesn't apply to you yet. But when you hit about 40, you start to get letters in the post, don't you, like this? Uh, an urgent message about your eye examination. It's two years since your last eye examination. Um, I have a family history of glaucoma. Anybody else have a family history? What does that entitle you to? So it entitles you to a free annual NHS check. Does anybody realise that Specsafe is part of the NHS? It's an NHS organisation. And I go in there and they send me letters like this. You must come now, it's urgent. And so everybody who's over, once you hit 40, if you've got a family history of glaucoma, you will get an invite annually to come for an eye test. Now, as Professor of EBM, what would you expect? I just go along and do my test? Or do you think I ask questions about, is that appropriate? Okay. Now, here's the evidence on this. Um, this is the health technology assessment for the cost-effectiveness of screening for open-angle glaucoma. And here's what it says. So, there are only two trials on this. Not much, is it? You think for a a problem where you're going to go blind, this would be a really important issue. And these words I put in green because I think extrapolating and assuming can be translated into we're making it up. Okay. Okay. So if you, if you are the people at risk and you have a positive screening test, then basically you're going to be committed to lifelong treatment. And we think if you do that, on average, you'll go blind less by about 10 years at year 23, 25, as opposed to year 35. But look here. Prevalence would have to be about 3 to 4% in 40-year-olds. 
And if it was a screening interval of 10 years, it would approach cost-effectiveness. So if I go at 40 and my risk is 3 to 4%, then I should have my test at 40 and at 50 I should get my invite back. Then it would be cost-effective. But look what it says, not effective. So I think that's really interesting. So we've bought in. So if you go to the US Presentative Services Task Force, the people in America who do the guidelines, this is what they say. They have not recommended for or against routine glaucoma screening for adults. Based on the evidence, that would make sense. Anybody like to disagree with that? Anybody work for NHS choices in the room? Because if you do, that's what it says. It is important to have regular eye tests. So we in the NHS, when people say to me, we need, to, we need more funds, the first thing I say is more is not necessarily better. It doesn't translate into more health. And what we mean by cost effective is, do the benefits outweigh the harm? Because if you pick up an eye, eye disease early, if it's a false positive, you're committing somebody to 30 years of treatment for something that would not have they derived any outcomes whatsoever. So you're introducing harm. You have to think about the issues of medicalizing somebody for 30 plus years. You're walking along the street, you're 40 years old, and some, somebody goes, you have an eye problem, that means you're going to go blind, unless. That's not true. And so these statements are unhelpful and incorrect, but exist on NHS charities. So, look, the thing is, if you look at the diagnostic evidence, okay, you have two terms, your sensitivity and your specificity. Yep. Now, all the people on the course have got them committed in their mind. So by Thursday, when I come back to you, you're going to be like this. The proportion of people with disease who test positive is the sensitivity, and you would want that to be really high. In the proportion of people without the disease who test negative, you also want that to be really high. So the perfect test has 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity. Intraocular pressure. That's when they put something in and test the pressure in your eyeball. And if it goes up, you've got, you're at risk of glaucoma. If it gets too high, then you do the treatment. So this is above a certain pressure. Okay? So we go back to the 5% prevalence. I'm going to walk you through this. This is a bit now where you go into a clinical session. I've done this with radiologists, consultants, the lot. They're completely lost. But this completely underpins your rational thinking. And if you assume a 5% prevalence, so somebody at risk, so if we assume as a 40-year-old with a family history, you have about a 5% chance of having glaucoma in your lifetime, okay? The first thing you can do is work out some very simple things, like in 1,000 people, 50 people will have the disease, and 950 will not. Happy with that? Very simple. Now you can start to translate some very simple pieces of information if you take the sensitivity to be 90%, okay? Sensitivity is the proportion of people with the disease who test positive. How many people? Well done, super. All right, it's not that difficult. Right. 
So it's pretty good actually. 50 people with the disease will test out of them 45 will test positive. All right. And we also said, look at the specificity, amazing, 99%. So you also can say, of the people without the disease, how many of them will test positive? Well, actually, you can get this bump number, okay? And that's sort of like, if you do the number, the math, sorry, that specificity is 90%, it's not 99, 90%. But let me just tell you, if you do the best positive test result, 140 people will test positive, of which only 45 have the disease. Yeah? That's the best result. So, of every, if you go to spectators, have a positive test, there's only a one in three chance of you actually having the disease. Every two other people will have eye drops for the next 30 years as a false positive. But that's the best ever it can be. That's taking the best research, the biased stuff. If you look at the stuff when you go for the worst case scenario, yeah? This is what it looks like for the worst case scenario. Yeah? If you look at the research, one in 30 chance of you actually having the disease. And so we accept this really poor quality research all the time. And to me, is understanding the reasoning suggests we have a problem. The studies are no good. Even if you take the best case scenario, you've got a one in three chance of it being correct and a two in three chance of it being incorrect. So for every three people diagnosed, two people will be false positive. Happy with that? If you assume and take the best possible studied results, which that's what you do critical appraisal and you say there's a range of studies, so maybe we'll take the midpoint. You have to make some decision. But if you look at the worst type of results, oh my God. You committed to 30, 40 years of treatment and which 97 people out of 100 won't have the disease and only three will. And you'll never know the answer. Nobody will know the answer because we don't do the research to follow people up. So it's not surprising, but this is why we do it. Because you get these personal accounts all the time. I got my test just in time and I got the treatment and therefore I've been saved. You know, and that's the sort of where healthcare is. So, if you were me, what would you do? Would you go for your annual screening test? If you knew the information like that? What would your decision be? Would you go, never again? Would you go every five years? Would you go every ten years? Come on, that's, this is evidence-based practice. What are you going to advise me based on the evidence? What the USPF says? What the evidence shows you? We can't, in practice, evidence-based practice, go, I know you come into, you want to go to expect savers, but do you mind if we do a study before you come? <laughs> no, I'm telling you, I'm looking for you based on this information. What have I shown you? That the best evidence assumes, if I'm treated, and I have to make it up, because the trials are only two to three years, is it's somewhere between 25 and 35 years in the delay in getting glaucoma. So it's not... It's not yes or no, it's just a delay. Because the pressures will go up and up, and you're delaying that pressures. However, if I assume the best test, then there's a two in three chance I'm false positive if I get a sudden positive diagnosis. The US Presentative Task Force says don't bother, NHS says go regular. And it looks like cost effectiveness says it's about 10 years if I have a four or five percent risk. 
So what am I going to do? You might say I'll go every 10 years. I've had my one test at 40, I've now been at 50. So it's, it's the same question. You could ask yourself the evidence-based question of going, what should I do in a screening world? But what I'm putting to you guys right now is how little people ask these sorts of questions in healthcare. Whether it's people in the NHS, it's commissioners, whether it's doctors, clinicians, just go, I'm going to go and have my test because I've got a letter. Without understanding what the potential benefit or harms are. Now, when you think about it, there's stuff everywhere. Here's one I got, another appointment invitation. This is to a health screening clinic at the Kassan Stadium. Wonderful. Look at this. Why have I been invited? We write to a small number of people. How lucky am I? <laughs> yeah. We encourage you to compare the content and quality of our screen with Booper. Our screening is £129. Cheap as chips. Okay? However, if you go for the Booper health check, that includes all these essential health checks, it would be £424. So this stuff is invading everywhere we go. But going back some time, this is a paper which involved Brian Haynes and Dave Sackett, which I referred to a book uh, in 1978, which basically said, we know if you go into in industrial settings in the 70s and confirm and explore people's diagnosis of hypertension, you definitely will increase their absenteeism. You will make sure they're more anxious and depressed and they have more psychological problems. So we don't understand what it is the important outcomes. We have to have a, these trade-offs. Do you really want to know at 40, you might just die at some point, on the fact you will die at some point? Or would you like me to say, actually, we can tell you exactly the day and what it is and what you have to reduce your risk by all the time? And in doing that, what harms do we introduce into society? Think about that. So, here's another one. Um, I don't know anybody's come across, uh, anybody ever done any depression screening? You've done it as part of your job, or ever done it on yourself? I, yeah. Well, I'd recommend this. We do these scores all the time. PHQ-9 is a, is a health questionnaire for depression. And it, what happens is these measures turn out as, as measures in research. Because they're a nice way of saying, we did a treatment, and we did the PHQ-9, it's got some face validity, and we showed the difference between treatment A and B. And then we go, oh, actually, we'll use it as a diagnostic criteria. So look what happens. So here's the nine questions. So I put these questions to myself. Okay? So, little interest or pleasure in doing things on several days. I was feeling a bit unwell when I did this. I had the flu. I was feeling a bit down. And it was like the week after Christmas. It didn't say when it was, you know. So I scored one. Feeling... I scored for trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or sleeping too much. Nearly every day. I have problems falling asleep, and I have problems staying asleep, and it pretty much is quite common. And I give myself a free. Feeling tired or having little energy. Anybody in the room feel a bit like that? I feel like that. More than half the days. You can see poor appetite or overeating. I overeat a lot in the evenings and have a poor appetite in the mornings and I have trouble concentrating on things such as reading the new newspaper or watching TV. If that was my children they'd be every day because they're always on their iPhone 
And so my score was about five to nine. I have minimal symptoms, but I need support and education to call if worth returning one month. Okay, I have a provisional diagnosis. I'm nearly another point. I've got minor depression. Now, is, you mentioned it like repeat the test. I might do it again today. The score might be four. So there's no measurement about variation. On another day, I could score ten. I suspect everybody in this room on a day, on a bad day, could score ten. You get a rejection from the BMJ. You're like a 10, aren't you? Uh. But it's interesting. When you look at the evidence of the false positives and the false negatives and looking at the diagnosis, yeah? Um, what's really interesting, if you end up, the biggest factor in these studies that says what makes a difference to you getting a diagnosis of depression or not, yeah? So the truth, you've got depression, you get a diagnosis of depression, or you haven't got depression, but you do, yeah? It's familiarity. That basically, the biggest thing you can do is if you turn up at your general practitioner enough and say you're fed up with the world, you will get a label of depression irrespective of whether you've got it or not. Because at some point, the variation will, he'll ask you some of these questions, do you feel tired? You go, yes. Do you feel like lacking concentration? Yes, that's why I'm here. Are you having poor appetite? Of course I am. You have depression. And the biggest factor is how many times you turn up. Isn't that interesting? And so we have a huge number of people who are mislabeled. And that's why we end up with issues like this of doubling in a decade and features like this. The number's going through the roof and then this is open prescribing of which some people are in. And this huge variation in treatment and diagnosis across the whole country. Fourfold variation sometimes in diagnoses. And, and huge variation in prescriptions of about threefold variation in prescriptions. Because nobody understands variation. How many times do you think you'd have to repeat that measure for it to become stable and you understand what's going on? Now we understand that in blood pressure because if you do self-monitoring of blood pressure, home monitoring, they tell you you have to do it for seven days. And your blood pressure will vary, even if you need to go to the toilet. It will go before, it will go up by 20 millimetres of mercury. If you have a cup of coffee, it will go up. All these things vary. And so sometimes we say ambulatory blood pressure. Because we don't understand variation, we give you a label on a single measure of depression, which is not what we should be doing. So there's a whole swathe of research to start to look at this variation in practice, and a, 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 a one thing to have a read of, which is available online, is this Atlas of Variation in NHS Diagnostic Services. Unbelievable, the variation that exists. Cannot be explained by patient need. Completely lacking evidence-based guidelines, this type of variation of all imaging tests and blood tests. So one of the things I've had is a, is a student working with me, Jack O'Sullivan, who basically has come and done a DPhil, and we've been looking at these things about rising number of tests. And this is what it looks like, the temporal trends in total yes, test use from UK primary care. So look, this is test ordered per 10,000 person years. Yes, so this is 10,000 people for one year. Yeah? In 2000, it was about 14 to 15,000 tests. So one and a half tests per person. Everybody happy with that? 
some get more, some get less. But where it is now, 50,000 per 10,000 years. So on average, everybody gets about five tests per year. Now, I um, don't know what you think about that, but that's a huge increase, isn't it? Yeah? If you think about somewhere like Oxford City, that's about 170,000 people. So it's 50,000 times about 17. Yeah? And you can go and look at the paper and it shows you some people are getting inordinate amounts of tests, but actually there's been a huge increase in the less than five tests. Some tests are much greater, and I'll show you something like cholesterol's gone up, but there are all sorts of odd tests like vitamin B12 have gone through the roof, and it, even in children increasing. So across the board it's going up. Now, anybody who's looking at that would go, bloody hell, you better be preparing for that, haven't you? The estimated time that it takes the GP just to look at the test at this point, we reckon should take them two hours a day, just in responding to the test they now get in practice, which is impossible on top of all the other work they get. So basically, a lot of this stuff's never getting looked at. And here's what it looks like just for imaging. I'm just going to focus on imaging, okay? I want you to think imaging. So you all have to think there. I'm going to give you, so there's been about 116% increase in, in, in use, about doubling. Right, so here's your quiz, all right? You write these down, but you have to, you have to be honest here, okay, because we'll come back to the answers. So look, there's five tests. You've got to pick one of five. I'm going to go five different shapes, right? So you want to commit to memory. I could have made you write it down, but I haven't got a prize, so there's no chance, all right? So I'm going to come back. So that's shape one. One of them is that rise. This is test ordering for imaging in primary care. So this is CT brain, lumbar spine MRI, chest x-ray, pelvic ultrasound, lumbar spine x-ray. Happy with that? So two x-rays, an ultrasound, a spine MRI, and a CT brain. I'm going to come back and then I'm going to have you. I'm just going to let you see the lot and then we'll quit it. There's number two. There's number three, just a gradual rise up. Number four, not much change. And number five, goes up and jumps down. Okay? Right, you ready? All right, who, who's going to go? Who's got anything sensible to think what counts for this range? Anybody got? What's that? All right, sorry. So that's CT brain. Goes up a lot. Goes up a lot. Stops. And we know this is not artifact and then continues rising. So there's something happening, isn't there? This is probably the advent of CT with a real change when money came into the NHS in 2000. People purchasing huge increase, stabilisation, but then it's going again. So this is the things we're looking into. This is more money coming in, this is probably normality, and then this is possibly guidelines coming back at you. What's that one, do you think? I think this is really interesting. Just a general increase all the time, going from about 200 to about 400, so about doubling in numbers. Yeah, well done, chest x-ray. Very interesting. So who said chest x-ray? Well done. So that gentleman and that lady there, what, what's accounting for that keep going up? Quite, remember, this is from primary care test ordering. NICE did change their guidelines. They said basically in terms of the 
we, the cancer referral guidelines, if you've got a cough for three weeks, you should send people for a chest x-ray. No evidence for it, that being a benefit, but nice guidelines said around about here, send people for a, because we're concerned that you might have an underlying malignancy. It's not, needed in the, it's not needed in the diagnosis and treatment of pneumonia. So what's accounting for this general life? We know NICE is, but it can't account for everything. We don't know whether it's people coming out trained different and thinking, because the thing is, if you have pneumonia, yeah, and community-acquired pneumonia, the chest x-ray shouldn't alter my management. The only thing is I'm suspecting something more suspicious. Anyhow, that's chest x-ray. What about that one? Yeah, well done. But it's an odd shape, isn't it? What should it look like? It should look like that, shouldn't it? It should be coming down. We know that from about 2000 onwards. All the evidence is telling you that lumbar spine x-rays are a pretty much a useless in, waste of time in back pain. And if you're going for serious pathology, you wouldn't be referring for an x-ray, would you, in the spine? So, I, we can't, I can't explain that. But I thought this would be the one that when we did it, ah, it's going to come down here. But actually, as you can see, it's not much changed. Okay, sharp rise up and down. You're running out of options now, if you've remembered. <laughs> Pelvic ultrasound. Huge increase. Yeah? Huge increase. And then summits happened here, where the guidelines will have changed. Guidelines have a huge impact. And then this is the final one. So there are multiple reasons, but isn't it worth us thinking about the consequences of what we do all the time in terms of the data on diagnostic testing? What are we doing? What are we achieving? One of the things I think I hope you can see is, oh my God, look at the amount of work we're creating. Because every time you do a test, it's not just a test. It's the individual, you have to communicate them results, then they have to come in and have a discussion with you, and then you have to do something further about it. I mean, any business would be going, oh my God, this is an amazing amount of work. We're going to expand primary care. We're going to be bigger and better. We're going to sell you the world. But actually what's happened is we've had less GPs in this time, and this is why we've got a real strain. But I think um, this is lumbar spine is because you've got direct access referral, so that's quite easy to explain but it does create a huge amount of work for people who are not really that thoughtful in terms of diagnostic reasoning so how well did you do it's interesting isn't it I've done this with a group of radiologists who they're the people who look at all these tests nobody got more than three out of five and it's quite interesting because they never understood in their own organization we should look at what we're doing thinking about what what the tests look like what's going up because as you do more tests what happens to the the the, the ability of the test to determine the positive predictive value what happens it gets worse performance gets worse because if you do more tests the prevalence gets less doesn't it and as the prevalence gets less it gets harder to rule in and rule out disease gets much harder. So we have a huge problem if you're doing more. And this is what, what really interests me, and I think later on in the week you'll do this. You get something like this, yeah? The incidence of thyroid cancer in the UK is going up and up and up. And then mortality is more or less flatlining. 
So we have situations where we're picking up more and more. We're trying to say to people, stop sending people for ultrasounds of the head, isn't it? And nothing's changing here. So there's a huge business in healthcare, in diagnostic services and technology that will offer no benefits, but will offer benefits to uh, industry and the economy. Because selling people stuff that's of no benefit to them is really important for keeping the economy going. And America is very good at that. But it, this, this flat line is really interesting. And so, looking at this is, and so if you look at the diagnostic atlas, if you go to the atlas of variation, there currently is a 4.6 fold difference between clinical commissioning groups in terms of the level of activity for CT. Yeah? Nobody has a clue what should be the optimal level. Now, in some parts of the world, overuse is a big issue. In America, uh, last time I looked at this, uh, it was about one in every five people has a CT on an annual basis. It's probably about one in every four now. And that contributes about a radiation dose equivalent to about 1% of the cancer risk. So it's a huge amount of radiation. So not only that, we talk about now trying to reduce the radiation dose. There's about a threefold variation in the radiation dose used in CT scanning. And you've got this whole body CT screening, as I showed you where we started, where it was emerging. And I think all of that's quite interesting. So I consider there are some options now for evidence-based action. Yeah? We need pathways for diagnostics not just you having a test. You need to know the benefits and harms and the results. So very simple language that explains to you, if you have this test, here's what it means to you, and the follow-on treatment is this. And I'm all right with people making decisions to have screening or not. That's not what I'm here about. I'm here about saying that when you do that, you should be informed. Um, we need a much clearer understanding of the benefits and harms resulting from different rates of investigations. What does it mean in these areas where you're having more or less tests? What's the implications on the population? And I do think um, we've lost our way. If you go back to the literature in the 70s and 80s, you'll see audits were published in The Lancet. People would think that actually doing a really good audit was a good way of understanding what's happening in practice and, and we've lost our way with the ability to benchmark, look at practice and consider what it is we're doing and the implications and it's been downgraded as uh, just something you do just as to put on your CV and once you've done it that's it but actually auditing and benchmarking is really helpful for understanding what's going on in practice. And then I'm going to finish just to say thinking about what it is we communicate when we're thinking to the public about tests. You see this a lot, you know, we're saving lives. Put it on your list. The emotive messages that we put, yeah, that's how we sell. We don't sell you actually, here's the numbers and the false positives and true and explain to you what's really going on. And, you know, you can just have this emotive and, and I guess, uh, 
I was on the London Tube just recently, and this was my favourite, I think, is that I can get my screening starting at just £23.50. That's on the London Tube, is a full set of tests that I can have today, which have no evidence underpinning the benefits of harm for me as an asymptomatic person. And I think, I think, I'm going to finish here because I think when you next see an advert like this, the question you want to ask yourself is, do I understand or have I got any possibility of understanding the benefit and the harm for me or the individual I give this test to? Now that should be mandatory in the training and in any organisation. If we do this test, what does it mean? How does it change our management? And all of that's missing now. And the problem is in some organisations I go into, we have also lost our way because the health system won't back people up, so they just say, I'm testing just in case. Well, if you're doing that, you don't need doctors. You can just test everybody that come through the door. Just screen them and put a big CT scan as you walk through the door. You're in. So I think, um, I, I, why is it so challenging to get reasoning and diagnostics over to people? I'm not sure. But it's one of these things in the advent of knowledge that we should have a revolution in understanding. Otherwise, we are going to blow everybody's budget in healthcare really quickly, and we're already doing that. Thank you very much.